Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. If you're still looking for a Mother's Day gift, I'm not sure I can be much help to you at this point, but uh, you might want to plan ahead for next year. If that's the case, I've got an idea. Uh, one of the shows that we watch at our house sometimes is the Shark Tank. How many of you watch the Shark Tank by show of hands? Okay, a number of you watch it. If you're not familiar with it, it's where investors or entrepreneurs come onto the show and they pitch their product or they, they pitch their business to a group of five wealthy venture capitalists in hopes of getting a deal and a financial or strategic partnership. When I watch the show, whenever I see like a new invention, you know, it's a little frustrating because you feel like you could have thought of that. And sometimes you feel like I already did think of that. I just didn't do anything with it. But, but sometimes there'll be a product on there that you would have thought, it's not going to work. There's no way this will work. And it, and it works. And there was a product like that a, a few months ago, and it was called the Skinny Mirror. Did you see in this episode, Skinny Mirror? Here's how the Skinny Mirror works. It uses curved um, glass to create an optical illusion so that the person who looks in the Skinny Mirror thinks that they're 10 pounds lighter than they really are. They look, it takes 10 pounds off. And so they had developed this product and um, they were trying to sell it to individuals, but they stumbled onto the fact that actually retailers preferred it more than the individual because retailers are trying to sell something. And so if you can put a skinny mirror up in your dressing room and people try on a pair of uh, jeans that they, you know, normally wouldn't get, but now they look at it and they're like, well, I've, I've got to get these. I mean, have you seen me in these things? And they're, they're looking at the skinny mirror. One of the things I found interesting about the skinny mirror is that they don't hide the fact that that's what it is. Like they have the name of it on the bottom right-hand corner. But here's what I found myself doing. Um, a few times since then, I've gone in, I've tried on like a pair of pants or something. And I, if I think they look okay, like I'm scared to look to the bottom right. Like I don't want to look over there. If that's a skinny mirror, I don't want to know it. And, um, and so it's a mirror that kind of tells you what you want to hear. It's not true, but it makes you feel good. I was thinking about um, some products that could go along with the skinny mirror because we could probably develop kind of this entire product line that just tells people what they want to hear rather than what's true. So to accompany the skinny mirror, you could get a skinny scale and a skinny scale is a, is a complimentary product to the skinny mirror. You weigh yourself on it and it tells you you're 10 pounds lighter than you really are so that what you see in the mirror and what the scale tells you it matches up. It's consistent. Uh, then there's also uh, maybe a product called skinny glasses. Um, you realize that your skinny mirror makes you look great and your scale backs that up, but what about your significant other? What do they see? Well, with a pair of the skinny glasses, they see what you want them to see. So you give them the skinny glasses and what they see matches up with what you see and what the scale tells you. And, and I guess I'm not that surprised when I think about it that products like a skinny mirror might work. I mean, we all have that within us. We'd rather... We'd rather not face a hard truth. We've gotten pretty comfortable with people telling us what we want to hear. In fact, I was reading about the latest trend on um, university campuses. They've created what's called safe zones. Have you read about this? A safe zone is a place designated on campus where students can come without worrying about uh, getting their feelings hurt. So it's a, it's a place where essentially your free speech is gone. You, you don't get free speech in the safe zone because you can't say anything that would be disagreeable or that might um, make someone else uncomfortable. And so it's where students can come and they can just feel safe. And so we, we kind of like that idea of safe zones. My feelings aren't going to get hurt. Nobody's going to tell me something I don't want to hear. No one's going to disagree with me. 
But that's not always what's best for us. And oftentimes what we really need is some hard truth. I want you to know that as a church, we want to be a safe place, but this isn't a safe zone. We think the most loving thing that we can do as a family is to look into the truth of God's word. In fact, the, the book of James says that God's word is a mirror that we look into and it tells us the truth about who we are. And in these next six weeks, we're going to be in a series called The Gift of Desperation. And one of the things I hope we'll discover is in our desperate moments, when we see some things about ourselves or about our lives or about a relationship that we don't like and it's hurtful and it's painful and we want to look away, that instead we will realize there's a gift of desperation. There's, there's something that can happen in that moment that is transformative. It, it can be, it can in many ways be a unique gift that God gives us so that we can make some changes, that we can draw near to Him, we can experience His power and His deliverance. See, we want to experience God's power, but, but that doesn't come unless we understand our weakness. We want to experience God's victory, but His victory comes with our vulnerability. We want to experience God's deliverance, but his deliverance comes after our desperation. And we'll just kind of trace this as a theme throughout scripture. And here's, here's the way we'll see this, is that God is drawn to the desperate. God is drawn to desperation. A lot of you could stand up and tell a story that would reflect the truth of that, that in your desperate moment, you discovered God in a way that you'd never known him before. And many of you, would say that the reason you're here today is because during a time of crisis in your life, God got your attention. You had been ignoring him. You had been just kind of living one day to the next. And then you reached a place where it didn't work anymore. It just didn't work. You couldn't control it. You couldn't fix it. You needed help. And you cried out for help. And you discovered that God was there for you. And so we're going to look at a number of case studies from both the Old and New Testament. This weekend's Mother's Day, and we're going to look at a, a story of a desperate mother from 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible app, open it to 1 Samuel. Because we're just going to walk through this narrative in Scripture that is a story of a, of a desperate mom. And um, the desperate prayer that she prays. Because one thing we know is that... You know, even on Mother's Day, we want to celebrate the joy of motherhood. And, and yet there's no doubt that mothers understand desperation. They know what it's like to, to feel worn out and to feel helpless and to feel uncertain and inadequate. There's the endless crying and the sleepless nights. And there's the nonstop messes and, and the questions and the discipline and the testing of boundaries and the raging hormones and, and simultaneously begging for the day that they grow up and move out while at the same time never wanting it to come and wishing they could stay young forever. It's a blessing to be a mom, but it's a blessing that oftentimes means being pushed to your physical, mental, and emotional limits. It's sometimes feeling so alone and then sometimes wishing you were actually alone for just a few minutes of the day. It's doing everything you possibly can to raise your kids well, but knowing there's just a lot you don't control. It's the desperation for your kids to make wise decisions and knowing that you don't get to make those for them. It's the endless mental comparisons that you know you shouldn't make, but you just can't seem to help. It's the feelings of inadequacy where you're given your best. You, you really are. You've given it, you're giving it everything you have, but yet there's just this sense at the end of the day that it's not enough. It's all of those things, and then it's getting up and, and doing it again the next day. There can be a lot of desperation in motherhood. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 1, we meet Hannah. 
She's not yet a mother. In fact, that's part of her desperate situation. She, she longs to be a mom. Her, her name's Hannah. She's married to a man named Elkanah. Verse 2 tells us a little bit about this family. It says, Elkanah had two wives. One, of the, uh, one wife was called Hannah. The other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. So, you know, it's kind of a recipe here for, for despair. Uh, what most likely happened is that Elkanah married Hannah. She wasn't able to have kids. So he married Peninnah so that she would bear him children. This is one example of many in scripture of polygamy. Sometimes people read about polygamy in scripture and think that the Bible endorses polygamy. That's not the case. Don't confuse examples of polygamy for an endorsement of polygamy. In every instance in scripture, polygamy is presented to us as a horribly bad idea. It brings uh, havoc to these families. And God's plan was one man, one woman for life. And that isn't reflected in polygamy. And again and again in scripture, you just see all the problems that come along with it. So Hannah is in this difficult situation. She's um, struggling with infertility. And, and some of you know, and are all too aware of it on Mother's Day, of the pain of infertility, struggling with that. About Statistically, about one in six couples will struggle with infertility. That number jumps to about one in four couples um, when it's over the age of 35. According to some research I looked at, one study, 63% of women who experienced both infertility and divorce rated their infertility as an emotionally more painful experience than their divorce. In in another study, women who experienced either chronic illness or life-threatening diseases ranked the emotional pain of infertility on the same level or similar level to a terminal illness. There's a sense in which, as one grief counselor explained, that when a person goes through a a, a chronic disease or terminal illness, they get support. And oftentimes when people are struggling with infertility, a a woman is struggling with infertility, that others don't know about it, and those that do can underestimate the pain of the situation, and then they end up offering platitudes that make, make her feel even more alone. So not to take away from the struggle of, or the heartache of, of infertility today, but e- even in, in Hannah's context, it would have been more difficult. Because there was a lot of social pressures, um, economic pressures on a woman, even more so in that day, to, to be a mom. It was considered to be her primary purpose for existence. It, it wasn't just her most important con- contribution to the family, but to society. And so as a result, in Hannah's day, a lot of people would look at a woman who was barren and they would think that they're cursed by God. So there would be judgment towards that, that person, that, that, that God was punishing them for something that they had done. What's interesting, though, is if you just make a list of, of women in Scripture who struggled with infertility, you'll find that it's a list of, of righteous women. It's people like um, Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Rebecca, Jacob's wife, and, or excuse me, Isaac's wife, and, and, and Rachel, Jacob's wife, or Elizabeth, the, the would-be mom of John the Baptist. There's a sense when things aren't going our way and we start to sense that desperation is settling in, that we want to blame God for it. We want to say, well, this is, this is God not coming through for me the way that I thought he would come through for me. I, I had my story planned out. I knew the timing of it. This, this should have happened by now. It hasn't happened. The enemy is whispering in your ear, God doesn't care about you. God doesn't love you. And so in this, this desperate moment, instead of, instead of crying out to God, um, there can sometimes be a tendency to, to push him away. 
And maybe it's, it's not an infertility issue, but maybe it's um, some desperation of failing health or, or a broken marriage or a rebellious child or strained finances. And, um, and you're, you're angry with God. Truth is, truth is, some of you don't even want to be here. Like you're here, maybe because it means something to your mom or your grandmother. You don't want to be here. Because frankly, you don't really like God. You feel like, you feel like that he has let you down and he didn't come through for you in some way. And there is a sense in Hannah's day that when something like this happened, this desperate moment, that people blamed God for it. Verse three tells us that Elkanah and his two wives made this yearly visit to, to Shiloh. It was about a 20, 20 mile journey and they would go there to worship the Lord and offer sacrifices. Verse six tells us of um, another kind of dynamic at play here in this family. It says Peninnah would taunt Hannah. She's, she would rub her face in this and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. And verse 7 says, year after year, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle, and each time Hannah would be reduced to tears and wouldn't even be able to eat. So she's in, in such despair, and some of you know what this is like. She doesn't even have an appetite. She, she doesn't, doesn't even eat. That's how upset she is by what's, what's happened. And, and Peninnah is making life difficult. Some of you know that kind of desperation because you've got this difficult person in your life that, uh, I mean, you can't change the circumstances. They are in your life and they have worn you out and you don't have much emotional energy left and you've tried to fight back and you've tried to change things and you've tried being the victim and, and none of it's worked. And, and here's the challenge. Verse seven kind of captures it. Where's that? Here it is. Um, Year after year, at the top. Year after year, it was the same. Year after year, it was the same. Yeah, I think that phrase captures desperation. There's this recipe that takes place where it's pain plus time equals desperation, and, and it, it's okay at first. So you think I can, I can handle this for a while, but then as the years pass by, nothing changes. Year after year, it's the same, and the desperation begins to grow. In verse eight, her husband uh, tries to make her feel better, tries to comfort his wife, Hannah. So here, here's, here's this guy. Verse eight. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Hello? Isn't that better than having ten sons? Man, there's a lot of rookie mistakes taking place here. Like, he's got two wives. Seems like he should have figured some of this out by now, but... He starts off by seeing that she's upset and telling her not to feel upset. Bad idea, fellas. Right? Like, don't, don't do that. If your wife's telling you how she's feeling, don't say, oh, well, hey, you don't, you don't need to feel that way. Feel, feel a different way instead. Um, that does not work. This is not effective husbanding. So then he tries to assume that, that he's the solution to whatever problem she's got. Right? Like, Honey, you won the husband lottery. What else do you really want in life? I mean, surely, surely this is enough. And, and so he's trying to make her feel better. But, but what's he doing? He, he's just making her feel even more alone, right? He's making her feel even more isolated. And she knows that he doesn't understand. I think one of the reasons Elkanah responds this way to her is that my guess is in the past... She had looked to him to be the one to reassure her, to make her feel better. 
I, I, I'm guessing that there was a part of her as a wife that just wanted to find her strength in the joy of her husband. Right? And so she is looking to him for reassurance. And he's, he's not getting the job done. Um, Angela Thomas is a Christian author and she kind of describes this point in a mom's life. It's a desperation point. She says, mothering requires everything. But eventually everything given plus little replenished equals desperately empty. And so I held the empty cup of my soul out to my husband and begged him to fill it. I held it out to a bigger house and a minivan, but only Jesus could fill it. I tried my children and my girlfriends, but again, they could not fill the place designed by God himself. I had been mistaken. I thought that the goal of motherhood was to be a super mom, but in fact, the goal of mothering is to be a woman of God to your children. A woman of God intimately connected to her Savior, a woman of God who can love and give from the overflowing cup that God has filled. And, and so Hannah is desperately empty. Her husband can't fill her up. He can't do it. So what does she do with her desperation in that moment? Verse 9 says, Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. This phrase, got up, right here. This phrase is not telling us about posture. It's not what it it's indicating. It's not like, well, she was sitting down and she stood up. This is, uh, this is the idea of a rose, that it, she um, had enough of living this way and now she was going to do something different. It's that she is going to try a different path, a different direction. So she, she got up and she goes to pray and she prays this desperate prayer. It's the prayer that you can only pray when you've, when you've tried things your way and they haven't worked, when you've attempted to fix things and it's only gotten messier. It's the kind of prayer that you pray when you've ignored it for as long as you possibly can, but now it's just falling in around you. It's the kind of prayer that you pray maybe after wallowing in it for a while, but then you just reach a point. Year after year, it's the same. You got to do something different. So what do you do? You get up and you go to God. One of the things we'll see in this series, and it's just consistently true, you know, in this room, is that oftentimes people will only turn to God when they have nowhere else to turn. And that's, listen, that's not a bad thing. That, that in that moment where you don't feel like there's any other options, you turn to God, that's, you know, he's a father, right? He's a loving father. And as a loving father, that's what he wants in that moment. He, God as a father doesn't say, well, okay, yeah, now you, you want my help. No. As a father, as a loving father, he sees that desperation and hears the cry and that's, that's what he responds to. Verse 10 describes this moment. Verse 10, it says, Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And this, this uh, idea of crying bitterly, it, it indicates noise. That she is weeping, that she is wailing. She's crying out to God. Verse 11, in her prayer, she prays and she makes this vow. It says, oh, she says, oh, Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you and he will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. God says, or Hannah says to God, look, you allow me to have a son and I will, I will put him in ministry. He will serve you as a priest. Now, he wasn't a Levite, which means he had to be a Nazarite, which is what the reference to the not cutting hair is about. But, but Hannah says, look, I, I will give him back to you. Now, when you read that, at first it sounds like she's negotiating with God. Like, God, you do this for me. I'll do this for you. God doesn't negotiate. God's not a negotiator. God's a giver, but he's not a negotiator. You can't negotiate with somebody who doesn't need anything from you, right? Like, you don't have anything that he needs. 
And so when she's talking to God here, this is not negotiation. What you have here is surrender. Do you hear that? She's saying, I will give him to you. I've been asking and asking for a child for me. Now I'm asking for a child for you. Big difference. And desperation should lead us to that place, that place of surrender. A couple of things in her desperate prayers that we should take note of is number one, in her desperation, she looks to God. She calls out to him as the, the Lord of, of heaven's armies, the Lord of angel armies. She's recognizing his power and control. She recognizes he, she's in a situation. And, and here's the reality. She can't do anything. He can do anything. Right? He can do anything. She can't do anything. But there's nothing he can't do. And so she recognizes his power and strength. In the very next phrase, she recognizes that God, God sees her. She asks God humbly to look at her. And I, I love this in the prayer because she, some, somewhere along the line, she has learned a quality about God that can be very difficult for us to pick up on. And that is he is all powerful, but he is all loving. It, it's this quality that's hard for us to put our arms around that God is the God uh, of the universe who holds the world in his hands. And he is the God who, who knows it when a single hair falls from your head. He's the God who keeps track of your tears in a bottle. And as a mom, to be, she understands this, this quality of God. That in her desperation, she cries out to him, and, and he not only has the power, but he, he has the heart. Um, I, I've asked four of our moms from our church family to just come out and, and um, just each of them share for a minute or two about a desperate moment in their lives as mom, as a mom, where God cried out, where they cried out to God. God um, was there for them. And uh, as they as they share their testimony, um, I know it'll encourage you and remind you that God is not only the God who is in control, but He is the God who cares. My desperate prayer was to be a mommy. I can remember watching all of my friends and family have baby after baby. I hated baby showers. I thought I was being punished for my past sin. I would ask God, why won't you do this for us? Am I wrong for wanting to be a mom? I mean, it's not like we were praying for a bigger house or more money. My arms physically ached to hold my baby. I was desperate for God to show up. I needed a miracle. I, 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 me, me, me. For a long time, my desperation was way more about me than it ever was a baby. You see, we wanted a pregnancy. We wanted a delivery room. We wanted our baby. And what we were blessed with was a girl who said yes to keeping her pregnancy, a visit to her delivery room. And after adopting God's perfect child for us, when, get, when God did show up, it wasn't what we expected or even prayed for. And now my prayer is that God will continue to teach me through my precious daughter that his perfect plan is far better than what I could have ever prayed for. And I pray now that he will show up in his way 
and in his time for some of you who are praying my desperate prayer right now. I became a mom at 20 totally unprepared and all I could think of is what or how am I going to do this? I felt such desperation the first time she got sick and of course it was a trip to the emergency room. I felt complete terror when the horrible accident happened. Falling through that storm door and major surgery required to repair the arm. Helpless to stop it from happening. As a mom to a grown daughter, I can remember the long days. The fun days like stopping everything to dance in the living room with wild abandon. The helpless feeling of watching the first boy break her heart. I remember when she was a teenager and everything I knew about parenting turned out to be wrong. (laughs) Now my desperate prayer after all these years is that my daughter Becky will come to have a completely committed relationship with Jesus. To fall in love with the Savior. To follow him with her whole heart. To live the life Christ has called her to. My prayer is not just for her but for other young women to realize that their identity is in Christ and not who, and not in the world who tells them that what they are. For them to know their self-worth lies within their relationship with Christ, that they see themselves as Jesus sees them, fearfully and wonderfully made. And my prayer is for my generation to be the one to help the younger moms by encouraging them, praying for them, And to remind them how much Jesus loves them. We know what it's like to be learning on the fly how to be a mom. But now my hope is that I can encourage someone who is now where I was. About three years ago, my husband and I had just moved into our first home back in Alabama. Had our first child and was working on our third dog. Long story on the dog, don't ask. My husband had been a member of the Army Reserve prior to our marriage, but we made the decision that we would pursue the chance to become a drill sergeant, which seemed like the best option to join active duty. With a new opportunity on the horizon, my husband quit his civilian job and went to South Carolina for two months to become a United States Army drill sergeant. He told me to say it like that in all caps. (laughs) I stayed back in Alabama with the baby as a support system, and to hold hold down the home front. I I definitely prayed some desperate prayers during that time. My husband was so excited upon graduation, and he talked about our new opportunity for weeks. But after searching for months, we still hadn't found anything. To add to the equation, we were now expecting child number two, still on our third dog, however. Him and I prayed desperately for an open door, but there was nothing. So I continued to work while my husband continued to pursue an opportunity to become active duty with one baby at home and one on the way. After four months of coming up empty-handed, we had given up on what we desperately prayed for. One day while driving to work, I felt the Holy Spirit say, it's not over. A few weeks later, my husband received an email offering him an active duty position in Louisville. God had been faithful and provided us with just what we had asked for. Upon moving to Kentucky, we knew no one within six hours of us, but felt the need to be connected to a church family. God connected us to a church family which has elevated our spiritual lives, marriage, parenting, and ministry. When times were desperate, our prayers grew more desperate. 
Even now, as a mom to two little ones in a new city, I still have my fair share of desperate minutes and hours and days. Now my desperate prayer is that we remember God's faithfulness, even when we don't see it in every single moment. As a single mom of three young children for the last four years, I know what it's like to be tired and lonely and battle-worn and desperate for God. I know what it's like when the bottom falls out of everything you've spent years building. I know what it's like to have your most important dreams shattered, to be betrayed in the most sacred of spaces, to be left exposed to every piece of shrapnel from your broken life that Satan throws at you, to choke on the smoke from your marriage that is burnt to the ground. His affairs, the divorce, my kindergarten daughter diagnosed with a chronic illness, my mom and best friend collapsing from a brain aneurysm, trying to hold it all together for three young children who only have you as a source for consistent love, structure, and an example of Jesus. I've had to learn that when I'm all they've got, I've still got him. I am not alone. I am not invisible. One of my favorite names for God in the Bible is El Royi, which means the God who sees me. When it's 2 a.m. and you're peeling yourself off the couch because you fell asleep trying to fold that basket of laundry you had to wash twice, he sees you. When all of your children are sick, and so are you, and you have no help, he sees you. When you're doing homework, and dinner, and cleaning, and bath time, and bedtime, and tying up loose ends for work late at night, he sees you. When you are cradling your crying babies in your arms and soothing their broken hearts because of the adults in their lives, he sees you. When you're answering tough questions from your kids about why, he sees you. When you're certain your level of tired is a form of torture, he sees you. When you're overwhelmed with your circumstance and the kids are fighting and you're ready to give up, he sees you. When you are doing all the things, all the days, and no one cares, he sees you. My desperate prayer for you single mamas is for you to know that God will meet you in your wilderness, in your loneliness, in your desert, and he has a plan to bless you and your children. So don't give up. He sees you. I want to take a minute to pray for these four moms, but um, I also want to pray for all the moms who are with us this morning. So if you are a mother, uh, would you stand? And if you're standing next to one of these ladies, if you're a family member, friend, and can hold a hand, and um, let's, let's, pray for, let's pray for the moms. God, I thank you for... Um, For these ladies who are standing, I thank you for the blessing that they have been to many. I thank you, God, for the strength that they have given. I thank you, God, that now you see them and you see the challenges that they're experiencing. You see the direction that they need. You see uh, the strength that they require, that none of that escapes you. And, um, God, that you are with them in this 
um, role that you have called them to this and you will give them what they need. And and God, they're not going to be perfect, but that's what your grace is for. And I thank you for the confidence that they can have in you. So my prayer would be that on this morning that they would lift up their cup to you. And if it's empty, that you would fill it up with your spirit and with your strength. And you would give them just what you need for the assignment that you have given them as mom. So we are grateful for them uh, today, God. We thank you for them. And we ask that you would bless them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Well, as our story ends, you have Hannah praying for a son, desperate for a son. And after she prays, verse 18 says, she, she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. And what I love about that is it doesn't say, and God promised her that she would conceive, or God spoke to her and said, you're going to have a baby. None of that happened. Her circumstances didn't change, but, but her heart was changed. The Bible says her face was no longer downcast. And that would be my prayer for some of you who are in a desperate place today. And there are things that are not going to change today. They just, they're just not going to change. It's going to take some time. And you're not even sure if it's going to happen at all. And a lot of it doesn't feel like it's even something that you can control. You look to God and you find hope and you find strength. He'll get you through this. And Hannah goes back home and eventually, we don't know how much time passes, but eventually she conceives and she gives birth to a son. She names him Samuel. The name Samuel just means heard by God or asked of God so that every time she speaks his name, she is recognizing God's deliverance in her life and how God rescued her in that difficult situation, desperate situation. As I was um, thinking through the story, one of the thoughts that crossed my mind was, what if God would have answered her question, her request, the first time she made it? What if the first time she, she would have said, God, would, would you allow me to have a child? What if God said, yeah, sure. I, I think the story would have been completely different because her son would have probably grown up in a home where he was used a little bit as a pawn between Hannah and Peninnah and And chances are Hannah would have been a lot more tempted to kind of put her hope in her son rather than her hope in God. And a lot of things would have been different. And you you have to wonder if if Samuel wouldn't have, um, he wouldn't have grown up the same way. But because God and his timing allowed things to unfold the way that he did, Samuel was raised to serve the Lord. He was raised in the temple. He was, grew up and became a great priest uh, for Israel. In many ways, was a, is a forerunner for Christ, that he rescued the people. He was, in many ways, a savior, a type of savior for the people. He anointed King David. And, and so God was working things together for good. She couldn't see that then, but God was working things together for good. And she put her trust, she put her hope in him. If, if you're here this morning and, and you need to pray a desperate prayer, this is the place to do it. And this is a place to look to God, to be reminded of his power and his strength and his love that is available in your life. And if you want to talk to someone about um, your relationship with Jesus, um, if you're ready to maybe to make this your church home, we'd love to, to have you as part of our church family. You can meet me down front. I'm going to pray for us one more time. Let's stand together. I'll pray for us and then we'll worship God. And if you have a decision to make, you can meet me right down front. Let's pray. God, thank you for an opportunity just to kind of take off our eyes off the desperation and, and put on you our deliverer. 
God, I pray that we would be inspired by Hannah's faith and we'd be inspired by her confidence in you and that we would follow her example, that in our desperation we wouldn't pretend like everything's okay, that it's okay to cry out, it's okay to weep bitterly, it's, it's okay to be honest before you. But God, would you let us do so with, with a hope, knowing that you through Jesus are enough for us and knowing that your grace is available to us. And so, God, would you allow us not to walk out of this room with a downcast spirit, but to put our hope in you and to find our joy and our strength in you. Thank you, God, that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you are drawn to the desperate, because whether we know it or not, that's all of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.